This is an ABC podcast. If you're a reluctant exerciser, does it help to know that it's because we evolved that way? And to be able to choose to do optional physical activity, you really have to override ancient and powerful instincts. Hello, I'm Amanda Smith, and this is Sporty. Why, oh why, when you know it's good for you, do you avoid exercise? You know you should, but somehow there's never enough time, it's too hot or too cold, you haven't got the right gear, it's just too hard. Daniel Lieberman is Professor of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University in the US, and he's the author of Exercised, The Science of Physical Activity, Rest and Health. And in it, he takes a really, truly fascinating approach to the subject of exercise. Professor Lieberman joins us from Boston. Okay, so Dan, heaps of people really struggle to exercise, introduce us to the idea that this is an evolutionary adaptation. Well, so first it's important to distinguish between physical activity, which is basically moving your body, and exercise, which is voluntary physical activity for the sake of health and fitness. And we evolved to be physically active, but but to go for like an early morning jog or go to the gym and run on a treadmill or lift weights whose sole purpose is to be lifted is a really modern and very strange and abnormal thing. Nobody ever did that until recently. Well, anthropologists and evolutionary biologists like to look to the last vestiges of hunter-gatherer societies for clues as to how our ancient ancestors lived. Among those you've studied are the Hadza people in Tanzania, who are still largely hunter-gatherers. And from that work, you say that we evolved to be as inactive as possible. Now, Now, what do you mean by that? Tease that out. Well, uh, the Hadza, you know, uh, who live in northern Tanzania, I mean, they're, they're among the last people on the planet who still, who still hunt and gather for the most part, um, and they don't grow crops. And uh, so they're a, sort of a little window into the past about what everybody used to be like until 600 generations ago. Everybody on the planet was a hunter-gatherer. And so studying the Hadza and, and, other, and other peoples like that give us, you know, some, a glimpse, you know, a window, uh, an idea of what, 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 what human life used to be like. And the Hadza work reasonably hard. So the average Hadza person spends about two and a quarter hours a day in sort of moderate, vigorous activity. So with their heart rate above about 50%. You know, they walk between about five and nine miles a day. They dig, they climb trees, they sometimes run. But but for the rest of the day, they take it easy. Uh, if you go into a Hadza camp, most of the time people are sitting. And in fact, one study by some former students of mine showed that that the Hadza sit about almost 10 hours a day, which is basically the same as Americans and probably Australians. So the idea that, you know, people used to be wildly active and incredibly strong and go out and do sort of needless physical activity is, is, is just not true, which is not to say that exercise isn't good for us. It is. But we need to understand that exercise is not a, a normal activity for being a human being. So, so in a kind of evolutionary sense, why is that? Why do hunter-gatherer societies, well, they're physically active when they have to be, but when they don't have to be, they're not? It's because energy is limited. I mean, the basic equation of life, right, is that, you know, you get energy in, 
and babies out. That's I'm sorry to reduce it to such a simplistic <laughs> thing, but that's that's basically life, right? Energy in, babies out, right? And for most of human evolutionary history, energy was limited. And the only thing natural selection really actually cares about is, is babies, right? How many children you have who survive and then reproduce. So if, if you have limited amounts of calories and you spend those calories, you know, working out on a treadmill, I mean, you just harmed your own reproductive success. It doesn't make any sense. So it's normal to take it easy when you can because you had to be physically active a fair amount during the day. You had limited amounts of energy. And so, you know, we have these instincts to, to save energy. A, a perfect example are escalators, right? So if you've ever been to one of those malls or in an in a, sure. in airport or wh- wherever, in a tube stop or something where, you know, there's a stairway next to an escalator, almost everybody takes the escalator. And that's because it's an instinct to save energy. Now, of course, escalators are obviously modern. I mean, there were no escalators in the Stone Age. But if you put escalators anywhere on the planet, it's about the same. About 5% of people will take the stairs rather than the escalator. And if you put them in the Kalahari Desert or the Amazon or, or you know, anywhere, people, it would be the same. Because it's, it's an instinct to save energy because that's what natural selection promotes. So if if it's an instinct, it's not my fault. No, exactly. I mean, I think part of the problem, what really motivated me to write this book is that is that we're very unfair to people. We sort of blame them and shame them and make them feel confused and and at best ambivalent about physical activity, about exercise, um, just as we often unfairly shame people who have difficulty losing weight. We also didn't evolve to lose weight. Um, there are all kinds of adaptations which prevent us. And I think if we want to kind of have a better appreciation and a better understanding and help each other better, you know, this kind of medicalized, commercialized, commodified approach that we have to exercise is clearly not functioning. I don't know what the data are exactly in Australia, but the United States, you know, 80% of Americans don't exercise in their leisure time. Um, and, and, you know, most of us don't get enough physical activity by basic World Health Organization recommendations. And, and we're not going to do it by just simply telling each other we're lazy. Um, that's not the solution. The solution is to help each other understand how and why our bodies work the way they do, understand how and why physical activity is healthy uh, without over sort of exaggerating. It's not a magic bullet. And to find new and better ways to help each other be active. Well, in in the evolutionary journey that we took from apes to hunter-gatherers, along that way we stood up and walked on two legs. Let me ask you a question that you pose in your book, and that's why are the forces that drove our ancestors to walk upright eons ago relevant to us today? Well, because I think one of the reasons is that walking is really the most fundamental physical activity for humans, right? If there's any one thing that we do, it's we walk, right? Again, I think I said it before, the average hunter-gatherer walks between five and nine miles a day. So in the United States, that's like walking from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. every year. Uh, that's just normal, right? And and when they do that, they're carrying things, they're carrying babies, they're carrying food, etc. And we live in a world where we've removed that from our existence, and during this pandemic, it's gotten even worse. I mean, during lockdowns, I mean, I, I've got my little iPhone here and it tells me how many steps a day I take. And apart from running, my, my average number of daily steps has declined by more than half. And, and I'm a pretty good walker, right? So so we, we've eliminated this from our lives. And, 
you know, if there's any one thing that we evolved to do, it's to walk. It's fundamental to being a human being. Well, uh, you mentioned the the typical amount of walking hunter-gatherer societies would do. Five miles is about eight k's, and that is about ten thousand steps. And it's interesting that even though that modern idea of taking ten thousand steps a day comes pretty randomly from. Uh, a Japanese company mm. in the 1960s yeah. as a way to market their pedometers. It is actually not a bad rule that suits our bodies. Yeah, no, it turns out to be just about right. There, there's no, you know, people often want to know, like, how much exercise should I get? And there is no one answer to that question. It depends on what you're trying to do. Are you trying to lose weight? Are you worried about Alzheimer's? Are you worried about heart disease, etc.? But but one of the, I think, the important facts that everybody should know is that even a little bit of physical activity is good, right? Um, if you're active about 150 minutes a week, which is what, 21 minutes a day, right? So just go for a reasonably brisk walk, 21 minutes a day. You decrease your relative risk of dying in a given year, the rate at which you're aging, by about 50%. And of course, more is a little bit better, but it tails off. So you don't need to like run marathons to get all the benefits of physical activity. So just a small amount can have enormous, profound benefits. The problem, though, of course, is that we don't want to. We'll get more onto that in a minute. But but as well as being able to walk, we can, of course, also run. And you've famously done a, a lot of important research <laughs> on running, Dan. Compared to many animals, though, we cannot sprint anywhere near as fast as they can. But we can outrun a number of animals. Tell us about the day you beat a bunch of horses in a race. <laughs> yeah, I, well, you know, in, in writing this book, I thought really I needed to try lots of things, right? I wanted to do some participant observation. I, you know, traveled all over the world to try various things. And one of the things I thought I'd do is to kind of put my, you know, I, I've written about how humans evolved to run long distances to do something called persistence hunting. And I wanted to to kind of, you know, I'm not going to run down an animal and kill it, but there's a race every year in Prescott, Arizona called Man Against Horse. W- women run too, by the way. And I thought I'd try it. So it's a marathon over this mountain, Mount Mingus. And uh, the year I ran it, 2016, I think there were 40-something runners and 53 horses. And I'm not a you know, I'm, I, you know, I love to run and I do run marathons, but I'm not an elite runner. I'm not super fast. And yet, middle-aged professor, I still managed to beat all but 13 of the horses over this mountain. Um, and it was um, why? Why? Because the horses overheat. They're not adapted to handle the heat and the distance. Horses are designed for sprinting, and th- these were actually endurance racing horses. But um, you know, by the time I got to the top of the mountain at about mile eighteen, I started passing the horses, and then I was much faster going down the mountain than the horses were because there were a lot of zigzags. And uh, it was actually one of the most exciting moments of my life to uh, to beat that many horses. And the horses, by the way, I should say, all got veterinary checkups, which were deducted from their times, and I didn't. So they all got to stop, get their heart rates down, get their body temperature down before they started again. They deducted those times from their times, but I, uh, I, I, w- I, I didn't get any veterinary checkups or, <laughs> or medical checkups. I just had to run straight through. So, so even with the extra help that the horses got, humans can outrun them. And that's because we have all kinds of adaptations in our bodies that make us superlative long-distance runners. So why were we humans designed to run slower further? Well, we think it's to hunt or to scavenge. So you know, back in the day when we, humans started to hunt for meat, you know, we didn't have any technology. We didn't have bows and arrows. We didn't have, we didn't even have spears with, with points on them. We just had our, our legs. And so what we would do is we would chase animals and the animals 
could run, of course, sprint faster than we can. They would hide in the bushes, but we would continue to chase them by tracking them, chasing them, tracking them, chasing them, and eventually run the animals either into hyperthermia or into some kind of trap or something. And all around the world, including in Australia, uh, there's evidence of people running down kangaroos and running down eland and kudu and wildebeest and and reindeer and you name it. Uh, Everywhere you look on the planet, uh, we have evidence that people use this kind of hunting until fairly recently. It was very effective. And um, it's actually not that hard. You only have to run about a half marathon or so. And they weren't running super fast. They were running at very modest paces, like about a 10-minute mile. It's, it's a very effective way to run and a very effective way to hunt. So, so what are the implications of being designed to run like that for us modern humans? Well, you know, running is the most, you know, just as we said, walking is the most fundamental form of exercise or physical activity, I should say. Running is the most fundamental form of vigorous physical activity. And if you think about most of the sports that involve you know, really getting your heart rate up, they involve some kind of running. Um, you know, there are some exceptions, obviously cycling, which is a, a novel sport or swimming or whatever. But but running is fundamental to to getting that kind of vigorous physical activity. And the more we study the effects of various kinds of physical activity, the more we realize that some degree of intensity is also really important. You've probably heard of HIT, high-intensity interval training. And that involves basically running fast for a little bit, you know, not long, just a minute or two at various intervals. And it has enormous, incredible, diverse benefits for people's health. And you don't need to do a lot. That's the good news. Just a little bit, a few times a week. And that's because part of it, I think, is because we evolved to do that. It's part of our heritage. And when you remove it from our environment, it's what we call a mismatch. It's it's like not breathing. It's like not eating healthy food. It it increases our vulnerability to a wide range of diseases, increases the rate at which we age. What about, though, how running is bad for you, you know, bad for your knees, you get shin splints, plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis. Yes, we're all scared of running, right? Because we hear these stories and, you know, to some extent, it's partly true. You know, everything has a trade-off and running is no exception. You know, when you use your body, you incur the risk of injury. But, But I also think that part of these problems are because we haven't learned to run properly. I think that running is a skill just like swimming or playing tennis or or all kinds of other physical activities throwing it's a skill and 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 we've stopped teaching each other the skill of running and and if you look at the data there are better ways to run and there are worse ways to run and learning to run properly not only in terms of the form that you use but also in terms of how much you do and how you build up and whether or not you you have a you know you've developed the strength and capacity to to handle the loads there's plenty of evidence that shows that it can really help prevent injury. Um, one thing that people are always worried about is that running will cause osteoarthritis. And I, I'm happy to tell you that there's plenty of data, many randomized prospective controlled studies which show that running does not increase your risk of getting knee arthritis. But of course, if you have knee arthritis, then running will exacerbate it. But running may actually help you avoid it in the first place. You're listening to Sporty with evolutionary biologist Daniel Lieberman. He's the author of Exercised, in which he takes an evolutionary approach to physical activity. And I'm Amanda Smith. And as someone with a background in dance and who likes to dance, Dan, I have to say that I'm delighted that you also pay attention to dancing as a form of physical activity uh, and one that's often ignored by exercise scientists. I'm kind of amused by your definition of dancing, uh, that it's jumping from one leg to the other. (laughs) But what's the evolutionary reason for dancing? 
Well, I'm not sure if I understand the evolutionary origin, but dancing is present in every culture. I don't think there's a single culture on the planet that doesn't engage in dancing. And in fact, everywhere I look, I find evidence that people not only dance, but they also dance for long periods of time. You know, the cultures that I work in, in Mexico and in Africa and, and elsewhere, you know, dancing is fundamental. It's a social thing. It's a way for people to get together. It has ritual significance. And it's fun. Dancing may have many different reasons and origins, but among its many benefits is that it, it helps train bodies and helps make people fit. All the good things that come from other kinds of physical activity come from dance. And remember, you know, we evolved to be physically active for two reasons. You said it yourself, when it was necessary or fun. And, and you know, necessary was usually getting food or, or running away from an animal that was chasing you. But dance is fun. And that's also an important part of our heritage. And, and I think if we want to help people be more physically active, we need to make it necessary and fun. And what better way to do it than dancing? Well, if I can quote you back to yourself, uh, just to sort of reiterate that message, you say that our ancestors had no choice but to spend hours walking and digging and running and hunting to survive. They also danced for social reasons, but otherwise they steered clear of non-essential physical activities that divert energy from the only thing evolution really cares about, as you've been saying, and that's reproduction. What that does, though, is it creates a huge paradox and and a problem for us post-industrial humans. Take us through the paradox. Well, the paradox is that we evolved to avoid needless physical activity, but we now live in a world where we have to substitute what used to be necessary physical activity with discretionary physical activity, and that's exercise. And exercise just like physical activity, is incredibly beneficial to our bodies because it turns on all kinds of repair mechanisms and maintenance mechanisms that slow aging and that keep our bodies healthy. And so we need to now choose to exercise rather than have to be physically active. And that's the paradox, I think, that we need to confront. And, you know, the way so far our society has tried to deal with it is by medicalizing it, you know, having a doctor prescribe it or some, some person telling you how it's healthy or, or commercializing it. So you, you know, you pay money, you buy some fancy clothes that make you feel sexy. And so you work out in them or, or go to a gym, etc. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things, but it, it's clearly not working enough. It's, it's, it's partly effective, but it's not effective enough. And I think if we're going to overcome this paradox, we need to understand our origins. It gives us new perspectives that, that help us, you know, be more active and enjoy it. But the problem we're constantly coming up against, to, to restate the paradox, I suppose, is that our bodies evolved to function optimally with lifelong physical activity. That's quoting you, but our minds evolved to move only when absolutely necessary. <laughs> that really is the mind-body split. Yeah, so we need to use our minds to overcome that. I mean, we, we never evolved to read, right? We never evolved to go to school, and yet we figured out how to get each other to school and learn to read. I think we should treat exercise the way we treat education. It's also a modern thing that we didn't evolve to do, but it's clearly beneficial. And we can use the power of culture and cultural evolution and knowledge and helping each other to do this because, you know, otherwise the future is like that movie WALL-E, right? You know, which I don't think we all want to to engage in, right? You know, it's, it's such a joy to have a, a healthy, well-functioning body. And part of that involves moving occasionally, but, but we also need to understand that that's something that we now are going to have to find new ways to do. 
Well, people who exercise regularly often say that it really does make them feel good. Uh, and apart from things like having better lung function and stronger muscles, it, it's, it's the release of things like dopamine and, mm. and endorphins that induce that sort of um, feel-good high. Why, though, do other people find exercise entirely unpleasant? They don't get that sort of good feeling from it and, and so don't stick with it. Yeah, well, that's an important question. So there's several reasons. The first is that dopamine is usually released after you exercise, not before it. So dopamine is that kind of molecule of more. It's the molecule in your brain which says, do that again, right? But you don't secrete dopamine in your brain before you exercise. It's after you exercise. So, you know, when I go for a morning run, I'm not happy in the morning for the first mile or so. I hate it, right? I force myself to run or go with a friend and because I have to run with him because I agreed to meet him or something, right? To get me started. But I never regret having gone afterwards. Um, the other problem, so, so most people who exercise find ways to sort of coerce themselves in a way, right? To kind of get started because they know that the benefits come later. But the, but the other problem is that not everybody gets the same dopamine and endorphin and endocannabinoid and serotonin reward and epinephrine reward. There are a whole sort of cocktail of neurotransmitters that make us feel better when we exercise. And one of the big problems is that when you're unfit, in particular, and obese especially, or you know, overweight, is that obesity actually interferes with that dopamine response. So it's harder, it's less pleasurable, and you get less reward. So it's kind of like a double jeopardy. And so that's another reason why we need to be really compassionate and helpful towards people who are unfit or struggling to lose weight because it's harder for them and, and, and not make them feel bad about the fact that it's harder for them. Help them understand why it's harder for them because eventually they'll get there, but it's going to take more effort and, and more perseverance. But, you know, judging them or blaming them is not the solution. We need to be compassionate. Well, when you when you talk about your own need to coerce yourself, um, mm. because of course you know things like dopamine don't cut in while you're on the couch, as you say, it's only once you've started exercising. It won't get you off the couch. Tell us about your friend who used something called um, Stick dot com. <laughs> oh yes, so so I have a good friend who um, lives on the other side of the country, and she was trying to exercise more. And she heard about this website called Stick.com with a two Ks, so Stick with a two Ks dot com, and it's a commitment contract model. So she paid money to this website. Uh, I think it was two thousand dollars she gave, and if she didn't do her, I can't remember exactly how much walking a week, but it was maybe you know two hours of walking a week, and her husband was a referee, that the website would automatically give $50 that week to the National Rifle Association, which she loathes and despises. Right? That's the organization in America that's trying to prevent gun control. So I think it's now three or four years since she's been doing this, and she has yet to miss a week of her walking. Because it, it's, a, it's a stick for her instead of a carrot. It's a stick that keeps her motivated. And when it's a horrible day and it's raining or whatever and she doesn't want to go, she thinks, oh, I better go because I don't want the NRA to get that $50. And it, it works. So, right. so it's about you're forced to pay money to an organisation <laughs> exactly. you don't believe in if you don't exercise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that might be an extreme stick, but we can all find other ways. You know, if, like get a friend to or a relative to be your referee. I mean, if you're struggling to exercise, you know, one of the best ways to do it is to be social. My, my most enjoyable exercises with other people. And that makes me accountable because if I agree to meet my friend Aaron in the morning at six o'clock and it's 
5.45 and I don't want to get out of bed, I realize, oh my God, he's going to be really pissed off at me if I don't go. And that forces me out of bed and he, he doesn't want to see me any more than I want to see him. We both like rather be in bed with our wives, but but there we are, right? And and But we're never regretful afterwards. So that's a kind of uh, sort of commitment contract. And there are many other ways in which we can all find ways to do it. You know, have a friend, you know, keep charge of your, your walking or your running or whatever. Um, join a team where you all help each other out and you're kind of responsible. There's so many ways in which we can find sort of commitment contracts, kind of models to help each other be physically active. And, and when we make it social, it's all the more fun and it's all the more rewarding and it's all the more effective. Do you think that knowing that we evolved to be as inactive as possible, uh, and albeit until very recently in the context of actually being physically active out of necessity every day, do you think knowing that helps? Sure. I think it's very helpful, just like knowing that we evolved to crave sugar. I mean, I think understanding you know, uh, why we are the way we are is, is important because so often we're just told stuff without any explanation. And I think... You know, there's a reason kids ask why questions all the time, because why questions help us understand at a deeper level and help us evaluate how to do better. And so I think it's enriching and enlightening to understand why things are the way they are so we can then figure out how to, how to come up with solutions that, that work for us. So yes, I do think it's important. And also, I think it helps us, again, I mean, one of the main themes of this book is that we, we oversimplify, but we also, we've created kind of this sort of false virtue with, with exercise. And, and people feel bad if they take the escalator and not the stairs. They feel bad because they don't want to go to the gym. And, and that's, that's corrosive. Yes, we kind of attribute a, a, a moral good to exercise. Exactly. And that doesn't help. And so I think understanding why we evolved to take it easy when possible, but also to be physically active when it was necessary, I think helps us reassess those kinds of moralistic value judgments that I think aren't really very helpful. And Daniel Lieberman is Professor of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard and the author of Exercise, The Science of Physical Activity, Rest and Health. It's published by Alan Lane. Daniel, it's wonderful to speak with you here on Sporty. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. The Australian swimming coach Don Talbot died on the 3rd of November at the age of 87. He started coaching in Sydney in the 1950s, the likes of John and Ilsa Conrads. He was the foundation director of the Australian Institute of Sport in the early 1980s and the national swimming coach from 1989 to 2001, over which time he took Australian swimmers to great success at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics and, better still, in Sydney in 2000 as well as topping the medal tally at the World Swimming Championships in 2001. Everyone talks about Don Talbot as being absolutely driven and focused on winning. Back in 2003, he spoke on my old program, The Sports Factor, about how that meant his swimming family took precedence over his own family. To me, uh, I, I didn't think about anything else but coaching. And, and that really, when I look back now, I wasn't really aware I was doing that. I thought I was there because we, we'd have some weekends, we'd go picnicking or do go to the river or 
do things like that. But we didn't do much else together. And, you know, you do those things so you grow away from them in their activities and the mother has to look after them much, much more. I mean, they never wanted for anything and they, you know, they lived the life. But, but you know, as a father, you're not around because as in coaching there is always something on. Always. It doesn't matter. You come and go home and, and, you, and you even go to sleep at night and dream about it, what you're going to give the kids next day for programs. Although Don Talbot was a tough coach and really pushed his swimmers, he didn't like the external pressure put on them, like when they were hailed as great champions too early. You see, what we tend to do is somebody swims great and the next thing we're endowing with all these wonderful characteristics. And I think that period of time in the sport, I call it longevity, is a very important factor. How long have they been there? You know, our great tennis players, uh, our great cricketers, our great golfers, and they've had years in the sport and still been up the top. And I don't think you can really claim greatness till you've been doing that for a number of years, right at the top, defending your position, because, you know, it is very difficult to get to win, say, an Olympics or a world champion or whatever, but it's a hell of a lot harder to stay there. And Don Talbot, as a top coach, stayed there, a long career over five decades. Among the honours he received, an AO, an OBE, a place in the Sport Australia Hall of Fame and the International Swimming Hall of Fame. He died on the 3rd of November. Sporty is produced by Damien Rabbit and I'm Amanda Smith. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.